Okay, we'll get started. <clears throat> Bhante, what responsibility do Buddhists have to stand up against stand up to Buddhists in Myanmar who are committing genocide against a minority Muslim group? A number of monastics have allegedly incited some of this hatred. What should we do? Practice metta. <laughs> Practice dhamma. <clears throat> you know, uh, it, this is unfortunate, it, and this is 100% true. There are um, lots of monks doing not so monkly things uh, over in Buddhist countries. And, uh, you know, there's, we kind of have this, this view in the West that we kind of have to always do something about everything. What are we going to do about these Buddhists over there on the other side of the country, over side, on the other side of the world? You know, Sarah and I, Karuna and I joke about it. We call it the Buddhist Expeditionary Force. <laughs> We're going to send the Buddhist Expeditionary Force. Like, so what, what does that look like? You know, I mean, so, you know, the, in terms of what I would say is like myself as a monk, although I'm a, a very junior monk, so traditionally junior monks don't have much to say about senior monks. Um, but I can say, like I'm those, you know, on my Facebook or wherever, I can say that this is not how this is not how you um, practice dhamma. This is not how you practice metta. You know, um, they might have some valid concerns. Again, just like I was saying before. There might, there might be things that they are reacting against, that they have resentment towards. There might be some valid concerns, but you don't, um, you know, you, you don't, like Bonte Silas says, you don't approve of killing. You don't approve of genocide. <clears throat> you know, you can't do, you know, there's, there's no Buddhist UN that's going to put Buddhist troops on the ground to stop the genocide or anything like that, you know. Um, Well, yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about that. <clears throat> there is a, um, I believe that some Buddhists have created some kind of movement or event online um, regarding this. You, you can look it up. I don't know if it's just a, like a, a statement or if they're actually trying to do something on the ground there. I don't know. But uh, if you're interested, you can look that up you could one of the one of the things that people have a, a misconception about is that Buddhists aren't human Buddhists are somehow peaceful and always blissed out and they exactly follow the teachings of the Buddha just like those Christians follow exactly the teachings of Jesus and we're all Buddhists and we're all no that's that doesn't exist we're all humans we all have greed hatred and delusion that's the way it is um, <clears throat> oh boy it's like war and peace <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll put that aside for now <clears throat> if there ever was a shortcut to Nibbana what would you say it is according to the Buddha the Noble Eightfold Path 
That's it. That's, that's the path to Nibbana. That's about as sure as it's going to get. <laughs> now, I mean, depending on your past lives and, and how much you've trained and all that stuff, some people might be ready to become awakened in this life. Some people might need thousands more lives. I don't know. That depends on each individual's um, practice. But there is no shortcut to Nibbana. I mean, that you have to put in the work. You have to do it. That's what I love about the, the Nikayas, what's considered the early Buddhist texts. The Buddha is very straightforward in those. And he's not, there's not a lot of flowery words. There's nothing. He says that he teaches, <clears throat> he teaches with an open hand, not a closed fist. There's nothing that he's hiding from you. There's nothing like you reach a certain level and then you have learned this new teaching and all of a sudden you can become, you know, fast road to enlightenment. That doesn't, that's not there in these early Buddhist texts. <clears throat> to go to Nibbana, you have to put in the work to get there. Oh, boy, here's another one about the, the Burmese situation. What is the view of the general Buddhist community on this? <clears throat> I think the Dalai Lama and some of the some senior monastics in various traditions have written some kind of a statement. Um, oh, here it is. Why has not the general Buddhist community tried to stop the, these monks with their Buddhist expeditionary force? No. <clears throat> There's one of the things, or when the Buddha died, or was about to die, Ananda asked the Buddha, well, who's going to take over? And he said, nobody. There's not going to be a new teacher. The Dhamma is your teacher. So that set the precedent for there not to be like a Buddhist pope. Like Westerners kind of think that Dalai Lama is the Buddhist pope, but when you learn about Buddhism, you know he's the leader of one small sect of one small type of Buddhism. So there's no Buddhist pope. There's no like overarching, you know, organization that has power over Buddhist monks in various places. Actually, according to the Vinaya, you can't, one group of monks can't um, chastise another group of monks. So <clears throat> there's this kind of tradition among monastics, or the way it's worked out is that they, you're not going to see many monks really go after other monks. You know, they're, they're, they can, they'll talk in general, but even like, there's no such thing as defrocking. Like nobody can go up to you and say, you're not a monk anymore. Right? That, that doesn't exist. Um, the way the Buddha worded it and the way it's set up is that if you commit the, the first, um, the highest, the, what's called parajikas, you're automatically not a monk. You have to actually admit to that though. Like, yeah, unless there's like absolute proof, like 30 monks saw you do it or something like that, you have to admit to it. It's like an honor system. So there are monks who have committed all kinds of stuff and they're still wearing robes and they're still being under the, the guise of monks, but they're not really monks. So it behooves the, the lay people, and I agree it also behooves other monks in some respects to 
really put those monks to the test and really kind of see in Buddhist countries from what I've what I can understand monks have become very similar to like priests in Catholic countries it's like you just don't question them they are the highest authority right and that's not how the Buddha said it that's not how he set it up the Buddha set it up that you know you that a lay people shouldn't support a monk who they feel is not practicing the Dhamma correctly. And there's even rules like for monks, I'm a junior monk. For three and a half more years, I have to be under what's called dependence, meaning that I have to live under a senior monastic. According to the rules, I have the right to decide who that monastic is going to be. I have the right to vet that monastic and say, I don't, I don't think I want to be under this person. Maybe I'll go over there. Right? So the Buddha never set that up, that you have to blindly follow anybody. So <clears throat> anybody who you know, would want to speak up, then they can do that. I got a, a, a message from a woman in Sri Lanka that I know only on Facebook. Only on Facebook. She just I don't know how she friend requested me, whatever. And she was telling me about <clears throat> how, you know, in Buddhist countries, just like in Catholic countries, like you'd have like a, a village, right? The center of the village is the church. In Buddhist countries, the center of the village is the temple. And so she sent a message. She was telling me about that the monk who was the head of the temple in their village was like very abusive and drank alcohol and all kinds of stuff. And they were, and she was telling me about how they were, the community was coming together to oust that monk so that they can get another monk. You know, so there's, uh, there's power. The lay people have much more power in Buddhism than many other traditions. Um, Bhante Ji said to practice metta in the ten directions, starting with east, southeast, etc. You said only six directions. Is it six directions or anything that works for anyone? So as you... Like I said, the, the Buddhist, if you read the suttas, what you'll, always, what you'll find hundreds of times is one abides pervading the first quarter with the mind imbued with loving friendliness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above, below, and all around, to all and to themselves, one abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving friendliness. So that's what you're going to see the most if you read the suttas. So that's six directions. The ten directions comes from later works like uh, Buddha Gosa, Visuddha Magga, where they have like the cardinal directions. So, you know, what I would say is this. Like, you know, as you can tell, those of you who maybe you know metta, you've practiced metta before, you practice First, I give metta to somebody who I, you know, a teacher, then a, then a, um, you know, a loved one, then a neutral person, an enemy, etc., etc. That's also something that's later. And since we don't usually teach the later stuff here, we, do, we don't teach that. That doesn't mean that it doesn't work. That doesn't mean that we're saying you shouldn't do it. But that is just how we choose to teach what we teach here. So, as I said, when I was doing the walking meditation instructions, what works for you is what works for you, right? The, 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 the words, the visuals, all that kind of stuff. The important thing is that feeling of friendliness, that feeling of friendship. When I think about that feeling that you build up, it's like, 
you know, I'm a I'm an Italian. My, I come from a big Italian family. My mother was born in Italy, so I grew up with the immigrant Italian thing. And every Sunday, the whole family, aunts, uncles, everybody, we're all together to eat around the table. And when I have metta, that's that feeling like I'm around the table with all my friends. But instead of just my family, the table goes out to infinity, and it's everybody. So that's like, then I have that feeling. It's like, ah, this is a good feeling. This is a good thing to be with my friends. You know, and some people have, maybe have family experiences that they, that doesn't work for them. <laughs> so maybe it's whoever that they feel closest to, you know, that kind of stuff. So, <clears throat> so what I would say is try what works for you. I think there, there is an important distinction between one of the main reasons why they where people suggest not doing it to individuals is because of that can feed the attachment to that individual. Um, I tried before coming here, before coming to a meta retreat, probably going back almost six years ago now here. <clears throat> that's what I was practicing. I was practicing, you know, the, the, the levels. And then I came here and Bhante Seals, may all beings be well, happy and peaceful. I was sitting there with you listening to the same thing. So, the, so that's how I learned. I learned from that. And that my metta practice really took off when I, especially what I love to do is practice exalted method. Like what you were taught today and what I'm going to also do guided meditation in tomorrow. That's my favorite because that, to me that fits, that just connects with that feeling the most and for me it's very simple I can just be walking and just all of a sudden all existence is in my metta right it's just because it's visual it just goes out in my mind so it's very simple so whatever works for you the importance is the eradication of ill will okay I'm going to save that one that's, one, that's the most common question in Buddhism. If there's no self, then what's reborn? I'm going to wait on that one. <clears throat> Could you provide some directions to do metta with walking meditation? When sitting doing metta, could you also visualize the ball of light expanding outwards? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do tomorrow with you guys. That's exalted metta. Um, So in terms of walking meditation, what I've practiced in terms of trying metta is I mentioned two things during my walking meditation instructions yesterday. Um, the two things that I've tried is just simply as I'm walking, just pervading my metta out. And um, either that or <clears throat> as I'm walking, each step like pings out. Kind of like what Bhante Sila uses that example of the, the, the um, water. Almost like you're walking on water and like the ripples come out or like the, you know, the metta comes out and expands to all beings. So that's uh, what you can try when you're walking. But as I'm going to talk about tomorrow, this, these techniques, you can, whatever you're doing, driving, walking, sitting on a subway, you can practice the, you can practice metta. <clears throat> Could you please give some basic instructions in standing meditation and explain the reasons for doing standing meditation? Well, 
I've never actually listened to a monastic give instructions on standing meditation. But after a little while of doing walking meditation, I realized, well, that's exactly what I was doing. Every time I stop and I go to one side and I pause and I'm waiting there for a while, I'm standing. So I'm practicing meditation while I'm standing. And so what I do when I practice standing meditation or when I would come here and the you know it was too tight in here so I would you know every once in a while instead when my sitting was too much I would just stand right in front of my cushion and I just practice standing and so what I would do while I was standing was I would pay attention to my feet just like when I was um, walking and you can feel like the grounding of your foot on the floor and you're just examining what does that feel like and you're watching and one of the the, the most interesting insights I've found from doing standing meditation is that, and this correlates to a lot of other things as well, but whatever, usually when we think, when we observe something, it seems like it's something that's solid. But when you see deeply, it's not solid. It's moving, it's changing, it's, you know, doing all kinds of variety of things. So when you're standing up, if you're paying attention, you think that you're like, like you know like what do they call like the, the the british guys or like the marines like you're like oh yeah i'm straight but you know what's happening you're going like this that's what's happening and you can feel the tendons in your calves balancing you so that you stay up right so that's the kind of stuff you can see as you're developing your concentration and standing meditation now i mean because you're not walking because you're in place you could also follow your breath while you're doing standing meditation you know maybe the breath feels different when you're standing than opposed to when you're sitting cross-legged you can follow that too is enlightenment something that happens based on your karma or must you put in a lot of effort in order to ever ever reach it <clears throat> Your karma is your effort. Karma is action. So what most, just as a clarification, when most people say, oh, it's my karma, actually what they really mean is, oh, it's my vipaka. Kama or karma is action. It's what you're doing right now. What you're intentionally doing right now. Right now you're sitting here listening to some bald guy talk. That might be pretty meritorious, I don't know. <laughs> Probably not as meritorious if it was Bonte G, but anyway. Um, so you're sitting here being in a place and doing a meditative experience. That's your karma. That's what you, you could be doing any, all other kinds of things. You could be going out, drinking and whatever. Uh, so your, your intention, your choice is to be here to practice something very wonderful like metta. Right, to practice the Buddha Dhamma. So that is your intention. That is your karma. That has results. That's your vipaka. Your results are what build from your actions. Your results are, are, so you have the causes and conditions, and then you have the results. Right now, you're setting the causes and conditions for a calm, peaceful mind. You're learning how to practice metta. And you can go home and you can implement that in your life and that can change your life and it can change the people around you. 
could be like, wow, you used to be all angry and annoying, but you're not peaceful and very happy. You know, these kind of things. And people look at that. So that is, that's how you get to, to awakening. You, the practice. Like, the, like Bhante Sila said, the, the three things that the Buddha says, this is the teaching of the awakened ones. To avoid all evil deeds, to perform skillful deeds, cleansing your own mind. Those actions, that karma, leads to awakening. That karma, practicing metta, over and over and over, lessens ill will in your mind. And that helps you lead to awakening. So, it's not that, you know, what you've done in a past life just automatically brings you to awakening. What you've done in a past life has set the groundwork for you to get to awakening. That's really dependent origination. That's the, an, an insight that I've really kind, come to see a lot lately is how my actions set the groundwork for not only my future experiences, but even the thoughts that come into my mind. It's really interesting when you start to see dependent origination um, in that way. Because then you really realize, oh man, what I do right now actually does matter in the future. You know, When someone is selfish, does that mean he, she has no metta? Hmm. Yes. Yeah, I would say in some ways, yes, it, it depends. <clears throat> it depends on what you mean by selfish. Um, sometimes taking the time to work on yourself can be seen as selfish by other people. Um, but in terms of selfish, what I would go with, if you are wrapped up in your own ego, in your own views, in your own thoughts, in your own perceptions, it's very hard to have metta for others, especially those who challenge those views and perceptions, especially those who don't line up with your beliefs. It's very hard to have that. The less you, the more you understand not self, the more you start to depersonalize your thoughts, like these thoughts that arise before you just automatically assume that they were quote unquote you. And then you, as you practice, you start to see deeper and you start to realize, well, maybe that's not the case. And then you start to realize, oh, I don't have to identify with that. I don't have to take that as given. I can just let that go, right? So the more you're able to do that, the more metta just easily arises. <clears throat> Bhante, I had a rare, interesting moment with Bhante <clears throat> probably about a year ago. I was just picking him up to, to come for lunch and I was telling him, I was talking to him about metta and I forgot what I said. I think I was having some struggles with metta and, uh, and he said, until you've seen impermanence at, <clears throat> at a deeper level, your metta will only be superficial. When you see that all things are changing, then your metta comes much more easily. It flows out because you understand the nature of, of life. <clears throat> and <clears throat> this is why they say Buddha has the ultimate compassion. <clears throat> it's because when you have that wisdom, the compassion and the metta and everything is just automatic. It's like 
I touch my hand to a stove, ow, it's hot. Well, duh, right? <clears throat> you have a compassion and the wisdom, it's already there. Of course, I should have metta for these beings. You know, look, they're all stuck in samsara, you know? So, Bhante, you said people who kill themselves will come back. This is obvious, I guess was for Bhante Sila. You also said there is no soul. <clears throat> if there is no soul, what is, uh, what is coming back? <laughs> See, most, every retreat I've ever been to, even before I came here to live here, every retreat I've ever been to, every q and I've ever heard, that's the most common question. It's almost, always, even on Buddhist forums. Every week, without fail, you're going to see if, not, if nothing is, there's no self, what is reborn? It's, it's a very, very common question. <clears throat> what is the significance of the vertical piles of stones along the path? Bhante doesn't even like them. They're not Buddhist. <laughs> they are, <clears throat> you know what those are? That's like very, very ancient human activity. That's like what people have done for ages and ages. Like it, Think about like our ancestors 30, 40,000 years ago, they would leave like stockpiles of things and they would pile rocks on top of them. They call them cairns, C-A-I-R-N-S. So that's just something that has just been part of humanity for ages. I've been walking with Bhante and he's like, what is this? Why are they? And they just pop up. Like just people just, like visitors just randomly like, I think I'm going to make one of those. So we don't know that. <laughs> There's no Buddhist significance that I know to these vertical piles. <clears throat> the deep red color of the buildings um, and the deep red color of the monk's robes well that's kind of that com the building color kind of comes from the robes um, why do some wear white all the time okay so the color of the robes the uh, in Theravada it doesn't really have much meaning much significance um, essentially, the color of the robes came from the dye, the, the root that was used to dye the robes in whatever country, Thailand, Sri Lanka, etc. Um, there's really no meaning between that. <clears throat> so you have Thailand, you know, Thai monks have like the, the, uh, like the ochre color, like the more kind of orangey color. Um, you know, Sri Lankan monks usually tend to have a little darker colors. Mine is more red than anything. <laughs> but um, so th that, it doesn't have an actual meaning per se. The only thing that I do know of, of is difference is monks who are, live in cities and villages tend to have brighter colors. Monks who live in forests tend to have darker colors. That's the only delineation I, I know of. <clears throat> so some of, the, some of the, the Sri Lanka monks that I met when I go into D.C., they have what I call traffic cone orange. They have like really bright orange, like the, you, you know, you would never get hit. It's really good actually. <clears throat> you should probably wear that hunting season around here. Yeah. So that's really all, all that is. Um, why do some wear white all the time? So <clears throat> there's a couple things, there's a couple ways that you wear white. Um, Traditionally in Buddhist countries, that's just, uh, you know, somebody who's a Buddhist disciple, that's something that they can wear all the time. Or they wear during special, like new moon, full moon, oposita um, kind of uh, things where they often will take on, um, you know, they'll take on like the eight monastic precepts that you guys have taken while you're staying here. 
sometimes people will take that on just as like for the day during a posted a day. It's kind of like a day to to you know have an advanced practice to practice to focus more on your practice. <clears throat> so that's really what it is. Now, if you see, if you were here about a year ago, you would see Samanera Karuna in white, and that was because he's what's called an Anagarika. And um, in the West, Anagarikas are, are essentially the first step of becoming a monastic. So if you are, you know, see people who live here and they're in white, most likely um, that they're probably going to be a monastic. Or like you'll see Kalina, right? Kalina wears white all the time as well. Um, so it's a, um, it's something that is pretty traditional and pretty common in, in Buddhist cultures. Bhante Silananda mentioned beings who are born spontaneously. This is one of several basic but important metaphysical things that I am struggling to comprehend. How can I improve my understanding of such things? Well, is it understanding or is it belief? That's, if you're struggling to comprehend, is it a, a scholar thing or is it a belief thing? I think that's the, the important thing for the, of clarification. Um, <clears throat> You know, in terms of, I'll go with the belief thing. The scholarly thing, you could read tons of books. You can Google it. You can find, you know, Google like 31 planes of existence or Buddhist cosmology. You can find all that stuff online. Um, but in terms of the belief of it, the way I go about it, you know, because it's very common for Westerners that they, it's, you know, the, a lot of Westerners left a Judeo-Christian religion. I did. I was, went to Catholic school 12 years, my whole life, basically, until college. I was an altar boy, I, you know, all that stuff. So I grew up Catholic. Um, so I kind of understand how people can kind of, a lot of people, a lot of Westerners will leave a religion. They still want something, but they hesitate that anything that vaguely kind of seems religious, they like, oh, you know. These kind of things. I was the same way. I've kind of grown to, you know, accept it and, and embrace these things, and that really it doesn't really bother me anymore. Um, but what I would say is, in terms of these other beings, these beings that are born spontaneously, these are like devas, yakas, um, nagas, the dragons, and things like that. What I would say is that <clears throat> they are, especially for metta, they're a wonderful tool in making sure that your metta is not limited right even in your mind be like oh that's stupid these devas and yakas and crap whatever even if you think that way you know what you're doing you're limiting your metta you know you don't know like when i think about you know i'm, I'm very big into like astrophysics and astronomy and things like that and some of the theories that have come out recently you know, like with multiverse theory and dimensions are very fascinating like some will say like, you know, some people, some theorists believe like there's dimensions like right now, like a dinosaur could be walking past us in another dimension. All these kind of weird things that you'd think that that would be something out of like a book and not like reality. But these are things that are postulated and, you know, who knows? There could be devas like Bhante Sila would say there are devas right here right now because they love to come listen to, to Dhamma and they love to be around people who are practitioners <clears throat> I do too right <laughs> those of you who, are, who become practitioners and you hang out with other practitioners like oh this is great I'm around people who are striving for the good right why not devas you know 
they got nothing better to do. They're just blissed out all day. They probably get bored and they want to come hang out. I don't know. <laughs> so for me, it's like even if I don't, even if I maybe have the thought, I don't necessarily, I don't know if I believe in the devas or not. It doesn't matter. I guess whatever beings there may be, I can't even imagine. Like somebody, uh, there's some scientist that says the universe is not only more weird than we imagine, it's more weird than we can imagine. Right? You don't know who's out there. So that's why you don't, you don't even necessarily need to worry about whatever beings. It doesn't matter. Any beings, you just give your metta to them. Whatever, any beings that may exist anywhere. When you, when you, if you start to study the devas and the nagas and the yakas, you actually start to see, and the asuras, you start to see a lot of connections be, with um, the ancient mythologies of other re religions that came before and things like that. So like the devas and the asuras seem very close to the, um, what is it, the gods and the titans in Greek mythology, right? It's, it's pretty fascinating, that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> And the, the devas, at least the earthbound devas, sound very, very familiar, very similar to elves. So you kind of wonder, like, especially like things like if all of, these, all of these different places have these same kind of beings, what's going on? It's, they're named different things in different places, but it's fascinating. Anyway, I understand the concept of metta and karuna, but, pra but in practice, how do they differ? Also, for the sake of dispelling confusion, how does one practice karuna? See, this is, it's hard because they can definitely overlap, right? You know, um, what I would say is metta is, karuna is, compassion is you have to see that somebody is suffering. You have to see that somebody is, you know, is going through uh, something that you empathize with. Metta is it's, you just have a mind of goodwill no matter who, where, whatever. You just walk around with that mind of goodwill. You're not necessarily always walking around with a, a mind of compassion per se. Right? When you see something, that compassion arises. Or, well, even if you, like, you can think about when you're mindful of your actions, there's compassion in that as well. Okay, so like with, you know, I, I want to be mindful while doing this out of compassion for myself and others so that I don't harm myself and others. So that, I guess, is what I would say the difference between metta and karuna. Metta is universal. Karuna is more, in some ways, situational. Um, how does one practice karuna? So like, well, one of the examples that I gave like before about like when you're driving or you know something comes up and somebody you know annoys you or whatever or something like that you can remind yourself you can remind yourself well they're human they're owner of their actions they're um, you know maybe they're having a bad day that kind of stuff so you're kind of you're going against you're using compassion and empathy <clears throat> to go against the ill will that's arising in your mind. You could almost think about, and this is me kind of just going off my own thoughts. You could almost think about it as metta is is more broad, and karuna is more focused. Um, I don't know how accurate that is, but it, 
it's and my thinking of it, it kind of is making sense. I think that's something that I'm going to have to develop over time. But <clears throat> I remember Bhante G describes one metta practice in his books, and that metta practice one starts with oneself, then parents, teachers, friends, etc., so on. Is that metta practice also good? So, like the one described in the retreat, I've already explained that. So. How do I know when I'm experiencing the bliss of metta versus the bliss of meditation? Hmm. Good questions. Making me think. Now, so, well, I, I kind of explained to you what I feel like is the bliss of metta. I think that in many ways the bliss of metta is more connected to emotion than the bliss of meditation. A lot of the, a lot of the bliss of meditation is your mind is always ping-ponging back and forth between likes and dislikes and hey, you know, I hate this and I don't want to do this and I do that. And meditation, when that all calms down, it's like, oh man, finally. This is great. This is the best. You know, just this equanimous, peaceful, calm mind. That's real contentment. That's real happiness. So I think that's a, there's a, a little bit of a, of a difference in that regard. Because when you're in that, like, when you get deeply concentrated and the world could be coming to an end around you and you're just so peaceful and content to be here with the breath. It's just, uh, I, there's no desire to go anywhere else to do anything. It's just nice, peaceful, and content. Right? That's wonderful. I don't get that that often, <laughs> unfortunately, to get that deep. But it's just like, no matter, anything could be happening around you. It's not that you like, all of a sudden, like there's nothing. At least I haven't gotten that deep yet. But you, things are happening, but they just don't take you away from the breath. Because it's just, you, there's no desire to go out and seek and, and, and find things to distract yourself with. So I guess that's what my answer would be, the two. If the attachment to the five aggregates causes suffering, is it our attachment to Sankara the problems? The five aggregates are Sankara. Everything that is not Nibbana is Sankara. So everything that is conditioned. So everything is Sankara. And any attachment to anything that is conditioned will cause you to suffer. That's the three characteristics of existence. Everything is impermanent. All conditioned things, that's what I chanted yesterday, are impermanent, subject to rising and falling away. Having arisen, they then must cease. Blissful is it when they subside. That's that bliss of uh, these, all this ups and downs. It's all gone. I'm just content to be here because <clears throat> I'm not chasing after impermanent things. So... It's not that sankara are the problem. See, this is the, that's the whole thing with the, with the yoke of the, the two bulls, right? The, the point of that simile is, is it's not that the bulls are the problem. The sensual pleasures are not the problem. Pleasant experiences through our senses, that's not the problem. The problem is, the, of, is our delusion. Through our delusion, 
we have greed and, and hatred. We have attachment and aversion. That's where the problem lies. That's where our suffering lies. When that's let go of, then our suffering is let go of. What does the Buddha say about the process of thinking? <clears throat> How are our thoughts developed? How does meditation help us see clearly in this context? Now, if you read the, the early Buddhist texts, you're not going to find a lot of philosophical and you know psychological treatises on exactly how the thought processes arise and things like that. Um, you can check out the Abhidhamma for that. The, that later work has really done a lot of work in making all kinds of um, you know psychology and things like that added to it. Uh, what you can know, though, however, is that through dependent origination, when this arises, that arises. When this ceases, that ceases. So you can see, this is actually what I was just talking about, like you, a thought arises in your mind. Most of the time you don't, you think that it came from somewhere, you don't know where it came from, but there were causes and conditions. You set the groundwork for that thought in the past. Maybe deeper in the past that you don't even kind of know where that is, you know, where that groundwork came from, but you, you set the groundwork. And so you realize you can, you know, you see that process of how the thoughts arise and where they're coming from, because they're coming from your craving. They're coming from your, your actions and your thoughts, right? <clears throat> it's like, for instance, I don't know, whatever, uh, a thought on, craving towards ice cream or food, a thought on sexual craving, whatever. That arises, right? And it arises because, well, you've fed that in the past. Um, and it also arises because of the fact that you're in this thing called a human being and you have these desires and all. There's a lot of factors. Um, but what you realize is you, as you practice, you become a meditator. And this is how does this help clear, us see clearly? What you realize is that when you, when that arises, if you don't feed into it, if you don't attach to it, and you just let it go, well then that is denourishing. This Buddha would talk about like the hindrances. He talks about nourishing the hindrances and denourishing them. So when you don't feed into that thought, you don't feed into that desire, you denourish it. You're going against the habit that you built up before. And so then next time the thoughts are probably still going to come, but maybe they're not going to be as strong. And it becomes easier and easier to just to not get attached to them, not to get involved and wrapped up in them, and just to let them go. Patiently enduring through this life. Patient endurance is the best meditation with love and compassion for myself and all beings I go forth with restraint in all natural inclinations and relentless effort in my practice I inch ever closer to my truest nature would this be an accurate take on the monastic path pretty much everything except for the truest nature um, there's no like 
true nature or anything like that that the Buddha ever spoke of. Um, so, but this is, you know, what, what I uh, what I think of, when I think of the path, I think of there's this. If you ever read this um, this book, it's called the Great Li- the the Lives of the Great Disciples of the Buddha, and in it, it's not a, it's not a sutta quote, but it, I think it perfectly sum, it sums up the path. It says, "The path, the path of awakening, is not an easy path made of uh, easy compromises, but a hard path full of uh, with, that requires the letting go, the relinquishing of craving, the letting go of acquisitions." Right. So it's basically saying, like, "Yeah, this isn't easy. <laughs> this is hard." The Buddha says this goes against the stream. And I'm, I'm not even talking about monasticism. I'm talking about the Noble Eightfold Path. I'm just talking about the path. Because whether you're a, a lay person or a monastic, if you're following the path, you're going to go through the same thing because you're a human being. Um, now, <clears throat> you know, the monastic life sometimes, and for the most part, allow, usually will allow you to have conditions to make it a little easier to follow the deeper ends of the path but that's not always the case so in general though I would say that that's fairly accurate you do need relentless effort to uh, to maintain this practice And as far as I can tell, the only people who have relentless efforts are people who are at least like Sotapanna and above. Because <laughs> I sure as heck don't have relentless effort. <laughs> That's hard. That's hard to do. The only person that I know that is, med- that is mindful 24-7 is, has to be an awakened being. Because they've, they've gotten to that point to be able to do that. Bhante, I've heard some people say that sometimes anger is a necessary ingredient or a necessary energy to break a harmful cycle. Or to bring people out of stagnation or complacency, <clears throat> to honor the anger, let it do its work, and release it. Is this somehow different than the anger which the Buddha says we should kill? Or can a case be made for the use of anger as it arises? In the suttas, there's no such case. Um, I, from my own experience and from my willingness to kind of meet some people halfway, I say like how I did before Um, you know sometimes anger or resentment arises because there's a legitimate reason or sometimes it's just because of your defilements and maybe you're not seeing things rightly and and anger arises well sometimes there may be a legitimate reason but that doesn't mean that you should act on that reason with your anger because that does not allow you to do so in a mindful compassionate with goodwill kind of way you're doing it with a mind a clouded mind of anger so when you do things like the Buddha gives wonderful advice to his son Rahula and he talks about it's the simile of the mirror and the Buddha told his son to be like uh, like when you look in the mirror to reflect in this way before I perform an action Will this lead to my benefit and the benefit of others or will it lead to my harm or the harm of others? If it leads to harm, don't do it. And then 
because we can have wonderful intentions before we do an act. And as you know, what they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? We might have wonderful intentions to do an act. And then in the middle of it, we realize, oh, this was not the best thing for me to do, right? Because that's the next thing the Buddha says, why you're performing an action. Is this for my and others' benefit or is this for mine and others' harm? And then, if, and if, it's for you, or if it's for harm, you stop doing it. And then, lastly, after you've performed that action, you contemplate. Is this for, has, was this done for my benefit, uh, mine and others' benefit, or mine and others' harm? So you have to, if you look at it in that regard, I cannot see in any situation where you can say, I did this out of anger for the benefit of myself and others. Now, and as far as I can tell, neither can the Buddha. So if you have to act, do so in a, in a way that is mindful, when your mind is a clear and able to think clearly and to follow those, those three suggestions those uh, by the Buddha. <clears throat> oh, man. Oh. oh, boy. There is a, tend, a trend towards Buddhism and social justice. Uh, I don't know if this is a recent trend. It's fairly recent for the most part. Um, I observed a lot of activism beginning with the oil pipeline and continue to observe that. In what ways do the suttas support or don't support Buddhist activism? It's now being referred to as the fourth way. Oy. Um, How do I answer this question? In the suttas, you'll find the Buddha talk about how you should treat your family, right? And uh, even some things are how you treat other people. There's very little in the suttas about, you know, well, you should do this for the best of society. Right, to, the, to the Buddha of the early Buddhist texts, the best thing you can do is rid your own mind of greed, hatred, and delusion. Because when you do that, then you become a beacon for others to do the same, and you change the people around you. Right? The Buddha had no desire or intention to change the world. Right? You can read in the suttas. <clears throat> it's very obvious that there's slaves. Right? The Buddha doesn't say, free all the slaves. He says, treat your slaves kindly. Right? He's not saying, go out and protest and change the world. And, you know, this is, so this is, what this is, what this is, is kind of Buddhism meeting modern Western thought and action and, and philosophy. Um, you know, I was an activist. I was heavily political. I was, you know, I've been in protests. I did all that stuff. Um, and I found that the, to me, that there's this one thing, I think it was by the Sufi poet Rumi. I think he says, when I was young, I wanted to change the world. 
Now I'm wise and I want to change myself. I went through that. Um, I realized that to me there was no changing the world. I could help others. I could change things that were in my sphere. But to try to, to do the social justice and activism and things like that, you're not really going to find that. Because you know, in the early Buddhist text, the Buddha is, looking, is coming from a grander scope. Right? He's, he's seeing multiple lives. He's seeing multiple realms and all of these kind of things. So, you know, the, he's not interested in, you know, even to kings. Like, so like there's, a, there's a sutta where he'll, he'll talk about, like, how a king should be. You know, like to treat their subjects fair and all these kind of things. But he's not going to kings and saying, you have to be this way. You have to do that. He's, he's not forcing anything on anybody. He never does. The Buddha never does that. He doesn't tell you, you he doesn't even say, you have to follow the noble eightfold path. He says, do you want to end your suffering? Do this. Follow this path. So, you know, I, I, what I will say is though, it seems to me that you're going to find more if you're looking for scriptural basis for this kind of activism, you're going to find it more in a lot of the, the Mahayana sutras and things like that. I think, now that's not 100%, but you're going to find a little bit more of that because that's where they have the Bodhisattva ideal and, and all of these things that kind of came later that you're not going to find in the, the early Buddhist texts. But what I would say is this. I don't, I don't say like, you know, they, people will say, well, look at the Catholics, they do all this work and all these things. And I grew up Catholic, you know what I saw? I saw doing, them doing a lot of work in converting, you know, people in the jungles and things like that. You know, there's charity, but there's something that comes with the charity. I don't believe in Buddhist charity. I don't think there should be grand Buddhist things. What I believe in that Buddhists should be charitable. Buddhists should practice generosity. Buddhists should do these things. But there doesn't necessarily need to be a Buddhist expeditionary force or a Buddhist activist group or anything like that. I've never heard this the fourth way before. That's interesting. When I go to every, every uh, about three times a year, I go to New York to, to teach retreats. And the, the, the place where I go is very, 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 very heavily activist. Very heavily activist. And so I'm always kind of a little, I always have to watch my words. But I, you know, I, I always have to go with what the Buddha says. Oh, like, because to me, he's, the way he teaches, the way he says things is, beyond our, we're kind of wrapped up in our limited scope. And there's some few people, you know, you can think of the great thinkers or whoever, awakened beings that are able to see a little bit higher than the rest of us. And, you know, your perception changes when you're able to see a little bit bigger of a, of a scope, a grander scope. Oh boy. Uh, my mind wanders so often Welcome to meditation. I worry that I could practice meditation for a year, 
and year or years and years and never improve just wasting time any advice and encouragement it will take years and years that's your advice and encouragement <laughs> don't <laughs> don't quit it's hard <clears throat> don't quit it, it's hard it is it's not like you know when people i've had i've had somebody say like I've been meditating for such a long time and I'm not seeing any benefits. I'm like, how long have you been meditating? A year. That's nothing. That's like you're a baby. You're just, you're not even, you're barely beginning to walk at that point, right? So, you know, it takes a long time. And oftentimes, the best way that you can know that the meditation is working is not while you're in it, but you can, you're, you know, you've been meditating for a time and then a situation arises and it dawns on you that you acted in a different way. Or you were able to see something in that situation that you didn't see before. That's when you realize, oh, this stuff works. Right? It's like a superpower. I call mindfulness a superpower. Because you develop your mind to be able to see things that we normally, because we're on autopilot, we normally just glance over that we can't see. But when we can see it, we can make better choices. We can make better decisions because we're able to have that mindfulness. That's what I'm talking about. With a mind of anger, you can't see those choices. With a mind of, with a mind of mindfulness, you can see those choices. So keep coming to retreats. Keep practicing. I've never had a retreat that was blissful. <laughs> retreats are always brutal but they're always extremely insightful. Like I always come, I always came out of a retreat like, oh God, oh, but this was great. I want to come back. When am I going to, you know, my next week off, I'm going to go to this retreat and that retreat, right? So, you know, don't give up. It's not something that you're going to see huge benefits from overnight. And it's not even, you look at me, I've been meditating for 13 years. I'm walking around limping because my foot's falling asleep and all these kind of things. Right? You know, I mean, it's, it's the way it is. Now, of course, there could be somebody who meditates for a year and they can sit there all blissed out for, for an hour where I can't. That's also, that's karma. That's, you know, tendencies. That's all kinds of stuff. But, you know, it'll take some time. You have to reflect and look back and see how your life has changed. And then you can see the benefit and the difference. By the way, since it's 8 o'clock, um, I will try to go a little bit longer and, and finish these up. But if you need to go to the bathroom, if you need to get up, you're not insulting me or anything like that. You know, if, if you need to take care of business, you can take care of it. Um, I don't want to hold you guys hostage or anything like that. Bhante, can you please remind me what are the eight monastic rules we took at the start of the retreat? I have forgotten a couple of them. <laughs> oh, this is good. Let me see if I remember them. So it's the basic five, right? You know the, the five precepts. Then you have the, um, the no high beds. And by high beds, it's not literally high. It's like just basically very comfortable, luxurious beds. And you, you can't really say that about any beds at Bhavana. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, then there's the, uh, the dancing and the singing and the wearing of garlands and all that kind of stuff. Um, also the, the normal precept of no sexual misconduct turns into brahmacharya, which means no sexual activity at all. So what am I missing? No dancing. 
Oh, the eating after. Thank you very much. See? Very good. It's been a long time since I took the eight precepts. <laughs> so, and no eating after 12. There you go. Thank you. Vikala Bojana. I even know the Pali. I couldn't remember. All right. <clears throat> so, yeah. So, that's the eight monastic rules. How do you teach a young teen to draw in circle that includes a circle which shut him out? When that circle continues to throw verbal daggers at him. Ooh. Ooh, that's tough. Oh, man. My favorite people to work with in my career were teens. Because even though they could go tell me to go F off, at least I could work with them. Right? You, 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 like, you can't work with like little babies, but I love teenagers. And teenagers, man, especially you know, somebody like this, this teenager's been through a lot. And they're not going to, maybe a lot of adults in their lives have failed them. They don't trust adults. They're not going to trust anything. They're not, you know, to, to, to get through to a teenager is really, really hard. Even a normal teacher, if you're a parent, a normal teenager, that's the years where they're like, screw you people, we're doing whatever we want to do, right? So to get through to a teenager is very, very hard. Um, you know, what I would say... is that we try to to work with him slowly, gradually, over time, talking to him and helping him learn about and, and practicing for letting go of resentment and practicing forgiveness. <clears throat> right? Letting so when when you're able to do that, like these the people who have thrown him out of the circle and throw verbal daggers at him. Maybe they're schoolmates, family members, whatever, right? Sometimes this person might need to kind of try to see things from their end, try to kind of develop that empathy for this person. Maybe, you know, maybe, you know, these people they don't know how to treat people right. You know, maybe they need help, all these kind of things, right? It's a lot of the same techniques that we're talking about here in practicing metta, right? That's not, you have to kind of convince him slowly or her, or slowly over time, that this is better for themselves. They'll feel better when they don't feel oppressed by these other people. Right? When they don't feel like, like those other people have power over you. Right? When you don't feel like, oh, they took me out of the... And that's hard as a teenager because that, that, those years are so much about like, the group. Right? Finding, like, being part of a group identity. That's an extremely important part of... You know, and then of course, then there's also the, being the individual in the group as well. So you know, you're, you're the, when you're a teenager, your peers are more than ever, anything more than everything you know even more than your parents you listen to your peers so that's a hard one but they have but this something like this is going to take time and metta and compassion for this person so that they can move away because if they don't have trust it's a survival mechanism they're locking themselves away they're putting them, themselves in their own circle right you have to kind of allow them to open that up and be vulnerable and to, and to 
you know, uh, spot, um, ignite in them that feeling of metta, that, you know, okay, you know, these people have done, you know, have treated me poorly. It's okay. You know, I have, I forgive them. I can move forward because I have to worry about myself, my own metta for myself, my own well-being, my own, you know, good mental health, all of these kind of things. So, lots of patience and lots of not giving up on them because a teenager who's been through that kind of stuff, they expect you to give up on them. They want you to do that. They're going to act out so you give up on them. But the, the ones that don't give up on them, they will remember. So don't give up on them. <clears throat> How do digital devices come into play regarding metta? What do you think the Buddha would advise if he were alive today? Thank you. Um, are you talking about like, social media interaction or you like I don't know what the the digital devices themselves um or are you talking about the fact that everybody walks around like this <laughs> you know um <clears throat> so that, that there's a lot of things to that question um what I would say is that interestingly enough and I, I kind of foresaw this in a way because before most people were on their phones like this, I was a gamer alone in my room like this. I was playing online games because I didn't have many real friends out in the world. My friends were all, all mostly all online. And so I would play games with them. And so I was in my room. I, my family jokes you know, about that even to this day. Are you, you know, you're hanging out in your room and all these kind of things, right? So I, so I was that. So you, there is kind of a... Even though you're oblivious to the world, you're still in a world, right? And you're still interacting with people. Um, <clears throat> so there's, I guess there would be two levels to that. There is how do you know when you need to be in this world and when you can be in that world, right? There's somebody, somebody um, I was reading something online or something about Twitter and how that's a, a den of iniquity. I don't. I have a Twitter account, but I never use it. I just like it feeds from my blog and all that kind of stuff. And and they're th they said Twitter is not real life. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm glad people realize that because <laughs> if they're getting so wrapped up in it, maybe they feel it is. But um, you know, some. So you have to know when to, you know, be there. If if you're like going around the world like this. What you're doing is you're missing opportunities to be kind and to have metta and to help people around you. Right? This is when I talk about doing walking meditation. I've seen some people who, who they think of mindfulness as just being totally focused and what not, they don't know anything of what's going on around them. Right? When you're doing walking meditation, you have to have situational awareness. So it's the same thing, like to, to, have, to be truly compassionate and aware in a when you're wrapped up in this world, there's options, there's ways that you can do that in the, you know, in the social media webs too. You know, like you can try to use your social media for uniting people instead of dividing people. This is what I try to use my Facebook for. You know, these kind of things. You can use the, that social media in a skillful way that is gonna be beneficial to the people who are going to all, who else are also like this. 
you know, and maybe that positivity can allow them to, you know, face and, and, and interact with the, the world a little bit more. I'm finding it difficult to stay focused during metta meditation because of the simplicity, perhaps. For lack of a better word, I get bored. <clears throat> Any suggestions to keep me focused longer? You might be kind of like me. You might, like, visuals might keep you a little bit more active into it. So, you know, try visuals. Maybe, you know, adding your own visuals to it. Um, you know, like, even what I would do is, I wouldn't, when I would practice my exalted metta, I haven't done it in a while, but I wouldn't bring up individuals, but what I would have in my mind, like, they would be like, almost like, kind of like a flip book of every type of being on earth and so it would just go like like that and so i'd like you know apes and insects and all kinds of stuff so you can kind of it's not that you're you know practicing on individuals but you're kind of getting a you're giving yourself more more things to chew on in your metta you know you're giving yourself more than just because the problem is with the words and this is actually why the words that I teach you are the words that I developed and used for myself. And the reason why I've, some people might think it's a little bit wordy, but you're not, you're supposed to do it very slowly and you're supposed to take your time. Is because usually when it's a short amount of words, that really you do, you, you can very easily have it become a mantra. You can very easily lose the feeling out of it. And it just becomes like a droning thing. And then that's all it is. You just get lost in the droning. So try to, you know, see if you can spice up your metta meditation a little bit. Um, and you know what also helps? <clears throat> Sometimes, like my last retreat in New York, I was there in April. And uh, actually, I was going to mention this in my talk tomorrow, but whatever. Um, so, you know, I have people, you know, I'm big in walking meditation, so I taught people, you know, walking meditation, and we're going out, and so it's not in the middle of Manhattan, it's in the middle of Queens, like the Rockaway, so it's pretty, it's kind of suburban, but there's a lot of people around, and so I would tell, you know, I was teaching walking meditation, and I said, and don't, don't forget to be aware of your surroundings, and I said, by that I mean, there's people walking all around you, don't just ignore them, say hi. You know, give them, give them your metta. You know, to, to do something, you know, say something nice for them. You know, these kind of things. And so sometimes you need to kind of act your metta out, which is a lot of what I'm going to talk about tomorrow, to get that feeling. And that's, you know, that can be normal too. So sometimes, you know, maybe tomorrow morning, tomorrow, go out for a walk and just wave at the cars. You know, to, these kind of things. Sometimes you might, it's an action. And, and so like my, the first time I did the metta retreat, <clears throat> the first day a woman's like, I just can't get into this Bonte. I'm not feeling anything. And then I kind of like, you know, gave her some words of encouragement. And, I, and then the last day after the, the next talk and everything, at the end of the retreat, she's like, Bonte, it was great. I was walking and I was waving to everybody and I helped some woman bring in her groceries and I felt so much metta and all of these things. And I'm like, 
Okay, well, I don't know if I would have went that far in New York, but I mean, that's, that's good. That's very good. I'm happy that you did that, you know. So sometimes you need to, to do it to feel it, you know. One of the lunchtime recitals says, we don't eat for enjoyment. If we enjoy a taste of our food, is, that cl- is this clinging? Thanks for your thoughts. Um, it depends on what you mean by enjoy. If you taste the food and it's like, and you, you thought, oh, this tastes good. This is a pleasant feeling. That's just, no, that's just understanding that this is a very pleasant thing. Now it's like, oh man, this is great. Uh, then that is, that's attachment. That's clinging to it. And, that's, and when that happens is when it leaves, you feel this like void. Like, oh, I want more of this. You know, and then, then you feel that attachment. I want more. Right? I'm going to go up for seconds. Oh, those people, they ate them all. It's gone. And then your metta goes out, goes out the window. So you can understand that something is pleasant. It's the, it's the chasing after more of it and attaching to it and, and ruminating on it. That's where the attachment comes in. Why is it easier for me to have metta for non-humans, animals, insects? They lack ill will somehow makes them easier to love unconditionally <clears throat> so this is this is one of my um, kind of I, I remember somebody at a Q&A Bonte asked this, answered this question it was, it was really funny she said something like all the humans here never smile but the animals are so wonderful and peaceful and I thought, oh, okay. And so, you know, what I think that a lot of people have is this kind of aversion to humans. Like, because we, we, the problem is we think that we're more than animals, but we're animals. And so you kind of think humans are supposed to be better. You know, humans aren't supposed to destroy this or do this or do that. Yeah, we just like other beings. This is what we do, right? So we, we kind of develop this like hatred for humans like even there's people like i would never bring a child into this horrible world with these horrible humans and like that that's like that's where you need to start practicing more metta for humans <laughs> you know i mean humans we're you know we are limited beings like you know maybe you think okay we have the capacity to practice dhamma and we have the capacity to make choices that most animals don't that's true um but that doesn't mean that we're all wise, we're all compassionate, and that we know what we're doing, right? So human beings deserve our metta and our compassion just as much, or even maybe more, than animals because of our, you know, our delusion. Um, animals are just basically doing what they do. That's, they're going by instinct. You know, we have the ability to do stupid things and <laughs> make the choice of doing it. So maybe metta for humans even more. <laughs> And also, unlike your teenage child, your dog can't tell you to go F off and curse you out. <laughs> you know, your dog is not going to say, no, maybe you could say your cat is persnickety. <laughs> but your dog is not going to, your dog is just going to just be a dog. You know, does abstaining from intoxicants include small amounts of beer or wine? Um, <clears throat> I would say yes, although that is something that that's a very common thing when talking about the precepts. People are like, well, you know, I just drink a 
bottle of wine for, for you know, dinner. Like, I grew up with that. I, <laughs> no, I, I'm Italian. I grew up with that. No, not a bottle. I mean a glass. I'm sorry. <laughs> I said a bottle. <laughs> so a glass of wine for dinner. Oh, I'm getting tired. But, <laughs> but anyway, so some people will say that. And, like, and I grew up with that. Like, you know, that's my, the, my family. They have, like, a, a glass of wine. So, you know, I mean, I can understand where people are coming from in that. Um, and I'm also not necessarily, what, I guess, what you would call a, a, a sutta-thumping precept, you know, strict, you know. Like, for me, it's like, you know, I would say this. If it's only for you know, a little bit, okay, but observe why, what's there that you don't want to let it go fully, you know, not necessarily that it's bad, the Buddha never says that alcohol is bad or it's evil, like I was saying, it's just what it is, you know, it's our attachment to it, it's how we use it, now, you know, <clears throat> the Buddha suggests that we refrain from all intoxicants, anything that allows us to be heedless, we want to refrain from because when we're heedless just like when we're angry we have no ability to be mindful right? when we have when we're intoxicated by something or another i'm not able to have children and this gives me pain and much suffering how do monks feel about not leaving children does it cause you suffering too See, that's a, again, well, that, that's kind of like the opposite of the person who hates the humans, right? That's like, <laughs> that's like you want to bring a child into this world. And, and, you know, like I was saying, for those of you who were in the tour, to the Buddha, human life is precious. Because to the Buddha, you know, it, it says that um, he gives a simile. Suppose there was a great ocean and you put a lasso in the ocean and every hundred years... A, tur a great turtle would put their head above the water. Sooner would that turtle put the head uh, above the water than a, a, a being would become a human. That's how rare it is to become a human. So the, I would say that that's a, you know, a good thing to have that desire. Um, well, what I would say is, okay, you can't have children. If that's physically, well then, if you're financially able to do it, what about adopting? You know, my, the last year and a half of my career in Child Protective Services, I was a foster and adoptive home recruiter. I went out and I talked to people and I did public speaking about, you know, you know how many children? There's, there's children who, what's called age out. So they can, you know, I can remove them when they're 10 and they never have a home and they become 18 and then they're out in the world, right? That happens. So <clears throat> there are, you know, even if you can't have your own child, there are children out there that could use somebody who is, um, you know, could use somebody who could take care of them. And, you know, a lot of times those children will appreciate their parents more than the people, you know, the children who are born to actual parents. You know, they some, a lot of times it takes till you're like 20 or 30 before you appreciate the parents. But a child who's lived in foster care and knows what it is to be, you know, abandoned or be around adults who are 
questionable and are not trustworthy, they will really appreciate somebody who's, you know, who steps in to help them. So how do monks feel about not leaving children? Well, there's some monks that are all like, oh, the world sucks, and I'm leaving the world, right? So they don't care about children. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, um, my whole life has been children. You know, before doing child protective services, I was trying to be a substitute teacher. Like everything that I've, every job, everything that I've been around, even my my mother was a stay-at-home mom. My dad was a teacher, and and so he, my mother even had an in-home daycare for teachers' kids. So when I would come home from school as a teenager, I'd help my mom with the children. So I've always been around children my whole life, and I do have to admit it's nice when we have like the families come, like the Sri Lankan families come, big families and lots of kids running around. I love to be there to you know, to talk to the kids and stuff like that. Um, so that's something I get to enjoy every once in a while. Um, <clears throat> you know, when I was younger, I would say, yeah, I did want to have children. But it's, these days, I, there's no desire for that per se. You know, like, it's not that I don't want to have children. It's that I feel that this is more important for me. So um, that's what I would say about uh, not leaving children. And it does, make the, it does make my family feel probably a little bit better since I am the oldest, um, technically the only son. Um, but there are others uh, like who can carry on the family name. So that will make things a little bit easier. But um, yeah, it doesn't cause me suffering. I also helped raise, um, I lived with and helped raise my nephew from the time he was one. And he, when, he, when I left to become a monk, he was 10. So that's, <clears throat> I never had my own children, but I had a lot of the experience of being a parent for the first 10 years of somebody's life. And it was very rewarding. It was very, you know, it was very a good thing. So um, in many ways, I've already felt like I've had enough experience with children, so I'm good. <clears throat> I remember Bhante Ji describing one metta practice in his books that metta practice, oh wait, I didn't put that in here. All right, so I think these are all the same question about the, uh, <clears throat> oh boy, jeez. Okay, so um, if there's no self, what's reborn? The five aggregates, there's your answer. That's the short, that's the easy, quick, and short answer to if there's no self, what's reborn? The Buddha says that you can look, all you can find is the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, intention, and consciousness. Those are the five aggregates. That is what constitutes, that's what an aggregate, uh, aggregate is, a coming together, a clumping together. That's what constitutes this being. Um, <clears throat> so that's what, well, the Buddha's not, the, the Buddha says, the only time in the suttas where he talks about what goes on to the next life, he says the mind goes on. So he just says the mind. So you could <clears throat> extrapolate from the mind the, the five aggregates, if you wish, or at least parts of it. Okay, so the last one. Um, bear with me, Bhante, regarding the five precepts. It seems very important to understand them and why to undertake them more than just following them. How can I ask and expect others to undertake them if they have little understanding of the importance? Uh, my friend rejoices in killing cockroaches, mosquitoes, etc., etc., my father loves to fish and hunt. 
He says he does not kill the fish. He puts them on ice and they die in their own. Uh, I don't know how this could get him to see it. It feels like asking others to uphold what is good will cause bitterness, resentment, and animosity. Yeah. <clears throat> Think about like any time when somebody, like when you become, when something, you get involved in something and it changes your life and you go through this like process, I'm, I'm going to say it, proselytizing period. We're like, this is great. I'm going to, everybody should do this, right? And then you become that annoying person <laughs> that's trying to like convince people or convert people to do something, right? And especially if it's like, oh, this is for their own good. But people really love that, right? <laughs> don't, don't you love it when somebody does something for your own good, right? <clears throat> so you have to think about that from their perspective. The best way that you convince somebody else, and it's not a guaranteed way, but the best way you do it is by living it. You live this way. You live a life of metta. They will see that. They might recognize it. They might not. They might want to, you know, they might ask you about it. They might not. You can't force anything on them. You know, you can't force anybody to change. They have to be ready. That's one, another thing I learned even before I was a Buddhist in my, in my career. You can't force, not even a judge and the force of the law can force somebody to change. They can only change when they're ready. People only change when they are ready, willing, and able to change. So <clears throat> the best you can do is live your life in accordance with the Dhamma. Live your life. Practice this path. Practice the Noble Eightfold Path. And if the conditions are ripe, well, they'll see that and it will have an effect on them and maybe they'll change. Because you can't force it on any, you don't, you don't do it, you know, that's why they, they joke about what reverse psychology, right? If you want, if you force somebody to, if you want somebody to want something, you don't try to give it to them or you try to be like, oh, well, you reverse the psychology and then they might want it. <clears throat> but um, yeah, no. See, this is the other thing. Again, this kind of goes back with the activism thing and all that. You can't save other people. Not even the Buddha. The Buddha can't save you. You have to save yourself. Like There's a, a thing, we've always had it out there and it's a wonderful poem and it's like, you know, um, by ourselves is evil done. By ourselves we endure. By ourselves, etc. And it says, you know, by ourselves we become pure. The Buddhas only show the way. Right? So you, if the Buddha can't do something for them, you think you're going to be able to do something for them? So become the avatar of the practice and hopefully it will have an effect on them. That's the, that's the best thing you can do. All right. Wow. <clears throat> Unlike Bhante Sila, I'm not very practiced in making really quick, concise answers. <laughs> so I've gone a bit longer. So we can take a break and come back and meditate for like a minute before we end. <laughs> All right. You guys can go if you need to take a break to, so you can get back. Don't wait for me.